Bobby, as a heads up for you, um, I got a new tattoo today. And so if I'm like adjusting and awkward and fidgeting, it's not you. I'm not bored. I'm just uncomfortable. <laughs> so. Okay. I mean, I was going to, I was going to chalk it up to both actually. I was just <laughs> completely boring. And, uh, you know, that kind of Oh thing. my God. This guy is just like talking. I have to like do the shimmy to like just wake myself <laughs> up. It's no big deal. It's one of, one of those things that's really hard when you talk to somebody and like, they are obviously, you know, I have to, I have to do something here. I have to move a little bit. I have to do something. And they're like, you know, obviously in some, some form of distress. And I always worry. I'm like, am I being boring? Am I being, I, I have the exact same problem because like I talk with a lot of people that tend to fidget or they also like, they, they like to look around the room just by whatever habit they have. And so sure. whenever their eyes start like drifting away from me, I'm like, Oh, I'm, 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 I'm annoying them. I need to stop talking about whatever I'm talking about. And then like the entire conversation just starts going down from there. And they're like, what, what, like what happened to you, man? You just like kind of changed. I was like, yeah, I, I thought it was bothering you. <laughs> you know what? That's also a thing I found out. Cause my sister and I were both <laughs> diagnosed with ADHD in 2021. Um, I think she was 2020 and I was 2020. It doesn't matter. Um, we both do that where we'll like be absolutely paying attention to what someone's saying and then be like, mm-hmm. I've also, mm-hmm. I've also, fa- like, I've also but yeah. still paying attention. Yeah. I'm definitely do that to you. And I'm sorry. That's just, I, I'm, I'm not, offen- I'm not offended at all. I've also met other people where, um, for whatever reason, like, I don't know if necessarily it's like it, like their ADHD or it's something else, but it's like, they, they naturally just avoid eye contact. I have the, I have the exact same problem where it's like, if I really, really know you, then I'm fine with like having eye contact with you. Other than that, I very much just kind of like my eyes will occasionally like dart away and mm. I have to like remind people. It's like, no, I'm interested. I'm totally interested. I'm really like, I really want to hear what you have to say. But after a while, it just like, it feels like you're staring into my soul and it makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really okay. Ma- like looking at someone's eyes when they're not looking back at me. Does that make sense? <laughs> like, and like a concert or like a performer or a speaker, I'm like, I will make eye contact with you because you're at most going to look at me for two seconds and then keep going. <laughs> That's, I mean, so in my, in my day job, I'm a journalist, right? So right. Um, I'm, I'm used to like, you know, eye contact but the worst thing I had a a friend who was also a reporter and he gave people weird vibes when he would uh interview them because he tried to be very facially expressive to let them know that he was uh you know really paying attention to what they're he would be like very intense and I'm just like no no Please never do that. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's oh, almost God. like a stare down rather than like, I'm really interested. Right. It's just kind of like, I will intimidate you. You will answer my questions. Well, he's like six foot four too. So oh, like, geez, man. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that's the worst. That's the that's like Stone Cold Steve Austin just staring oh, you down, God, just being no. like, answer my questions. <laughs> so imagine imagine him talking to somebody who's like five, five, you know, and they're like, uh, you know, trying to listen to them and take, you know, taking what they're saying and he's just looming. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm five four and that sounds terrifying. Like, <laughs> Listen, I'm, oh I'm five God. seven on a good day. I get it completely. You know. Yeah. No. I'm I'm the I'm the same way where I'm just kind of like because of how I was like so I, I worked for like a college newspaper, like I had the exact same problem where like a lot of like I like I gave off the vibe that I was I was constantly pissed off. 
And right. I had to like really, really dial that back in order to get some people to talk to me. <laughs> I was just kind of like, no, I'm chill, man. I'm just going to lean back in this chair. Like, I'll, like you talk at your own pace. Like I'm, I'm listening, I'm here, but there were still some people who were just kind of like, man, you, you make people so nervous. I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> why? I don't understand. I, um, well, I, and it is, it is a terrible thing. So I'm, if you can't tell by the accent, I'm from the deep South. I live in Birmingham, Alabama, not, you know, the cool place uh, across the pond, but um, I'm training a new reporter and she is very young and she has the really young person voice. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was told to me, and I didn't think about how this looked when I, when I told her this, but when I, when I started, you're very young. Okay. So use that to your advantage. Ask dumb questions, ask something that you know is wrong or, you know, the, can you explain it to me? Like I'm five kind of thing. And I've seen her do that now. And it's the best thing in the world because guys will take that, you know, guy, old, older men, especially will take that and be like, well, listen, here is what, how it really goes. And she'll be able to get really good follow-up questions off that. Yeah. And also if you like publish what they say, cause they, it's like a good explanation. They're like, oh my God, you like, listen to me. Of course I'll keep talking to you. Like, of course I'll keep explaining this to you. Absolutely. I, I, I was at a, I used to go to like a, a small little, uh, I, I used to associate a little bit with, with a journalist um, and she used that to her advantage where like she was, she was like, she was a very attractive woman, but she was also like a very, very good journalist, but she could get like anybody to talk to her because like one, it, it was either like a matter of like, you could impress the young woman with like your knowledge or whatever, or it was also just that like, she knew the right way to ask the question to get tons and tons of information like you look at some of the articles she's published like phenomenal sources like generals like like politicians it's like really really good stuff and she was like about my age and i was just kind of like man i've i have wasted my life (laughs) um lies lies and slander but i get it yeah yeah um but speaking about lies and slander shall we get started (laughs) yes absolutely hello Um, and welcome back to another episode of dark waters a literary podcast focused on dark fiction and those who love to read and write it i'm kirsten here's always with nathan hi everybody and we're so happy to introduce our guest today bobby matthews hello everyone so Um, Bobby Matthews is a writer and journalist based in Birmingham, Alabama. Over the past two years, 22 of his short stories have been published in magazines, websites, and anthologies of various stripes. And he was a finalist for a 2021 Derringer Award for Flash Fiction, which, wow, really well done in such a short career. Um, A native Southerner, his work often deals with people learning to, hopefully, uh, survive in a slowly changing South. His novel, Living the Gimmick, comes out in May 2022 from Shotgun Honey, while Magic City Blues is slated for publication in spring 2023. And is that also from uh, Shotgun Honey? That is also from Shotgun Honey as well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, When he's not writing fiction, he's covering sports in suburban Birmingham and being a parent to two amazing sons. His most recently published work is The Swahili Word for Hope, a literary crime story published in the Dilly Dune Review. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I believe you are. Yeah. yeah, and we'll link the review in our show notes when this comes out. Yes, it's it's a fan. I actually read it today, and it was absolutely a fantastic story. And I also read, I read it back to back with your story in Trouble No More, and I was like, wow, this is actually a lot of. This is not what I was expecting. Um, after because I read Trouble No More first, and then I read mm-hmm. uh, the Swahili word for hope uh, second, and I was like, wow, that is a massive shift. 
so fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you think the audience should know about you? Uh, let's see. Um, I bat right. I throw right. Uh, slow on the bases these days. Um, I No, I actually am uh, hard at work on a uh, Southern Gothic novel right now, um, which is uh, based on the 1976 landing of Hurricane Eloise on the Gulf Coast, which killed 80 people and destroyed a bunch of, uh, a bunch of stuff all over uh, Southeast Alabama, the panhandle of Florida. It's where I'm originally from, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I actually lived through this storm as a kid. And so oh, wow. I'm, I'm writing about the night of landfall through, uh, through the eyes of a reporter who gets uh, trapped in a large ramshackle uh, farmhouse with a bunch of weirdos. And it's kind of, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds like it's gonna be a. It blast. sounds really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he's he's trying to decide if this is a group of serial killers that he has fall, fallen in with or not. <laughs> so it's, it's a, uh, yes. No. Could be both. It, Could be some. The short answer is maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it sounds like the hateful eight mixed with Flannery O'Connor, mixed with the perfect storm. Bit. Yeah. A little bit. A lot of fun. Um, yeah. I I love. I love to do literary stuff, but also, I mean, my heroes are Elmore Leonard and Larry Block and Donald Westlake and guys like that. You know, I mean, those are the people that I try to uh, try to write like when I sit down, um, hopefully in a good way, not in a, geez, this is really horribly derivative kind of way. <laughs> That's literally all we hope for. It's just like, let this not be horribly derivative. Let this be unless it's a calculus piece of, unless it's a piece of calculus homework then it can be all derivative as much as it wants you know <laughs> if anyone i know in this writing podcast group thing that we're doing has studied calculus and like knows that to a t i'm terrified of you like i just <laughs> i mean you know, there has to be somebody somebody out there somebody would be like that yeah. Neil, Steven Neil Stevenson, I think, is probably the best bet. Um, he doesn't yeah. necessarily write in the noir community, but he's like big in the sci-fi community. And so he, I date, I, I was engaged to a girl who loves Neil Stevenson. She's also like a PhD in mathematics. So I, I got like my, I got my handful of uh, calculus every now and again. But he grew up with parents that worked at Fort Meade, aka for the NSA. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's probably got something to do. He's probably got like some heavy calculus background, at least some computer science background, which is terrifying to me. Um, I think computers to me are magic. Mathematics is largely magic to me. It makes no sense. Um, oh, I literally said that to one of my friends who is a, um, heavy metal musician studying on how to make, uh, music theory accessible in Braille and like music and like certain like writing music accessible in Braille. And he was just like, we were talking about technology. And I was like, dude, computers are, electricity is just magic with a math equation. Like, that's all it is. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, but so, Bobby, we'd love to hear a little bit more about living the gimmick and the rest of your work. But first, we want to get to know you a bit better as a writer and a reader. Um, so first question, because this is what we do. What do you normally classify under the header of dark fiction? Why do you love it? What are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book in that genre? So one of the things that I'm looking for is just something that is unsettling and gets under my skin. Uh, right now I'm reading the, uh, the only good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which is just absolutely nuts. Um, I'm not sure 
uh, what what my language uh, requirement here is. But if if I if I have to say G rated or PG, oh no, you swear, go as far. Swear as yeah. much as you fucking want. Swear as much as you fucking want. <laughs> Looks fucking nuts. I mean, it really is. It's tremendous. It is. Uh, I don't even know. And I don't. I don't want spoilers because I'm only about two thirds through through it. I, I want to get through it, but um, <clears throat> I look for stuff that just makes me go, "Wait, what?" <laughs> you know, and will prickle the back of my neck if I'm sitting up late reading it. You know, I I want that kind of uh, that kind of frisson on the back of my neck, right? So, uh, the story that that really started that for me is a story of Stephen King's back in the day when I was, when I was very young. Um, there's a story called The Boogeyman, which is in uh, the short story uh, collection Night Shift, okay? And it is hung on this one thing where the boogeyman uh, lives in a child's closet, all right? And you can tell when the boogeyman is, is around because the closet door won't stay closed. It will open a fraction of an inch, right? As a child growing up in a, in a small house that wasn't necessarily put, put together very well, my closet door would never stay open. Or I'm sorry, it would never stay closed. It would always open. I could be lying in bed having just shut off the lights and it would click open. Like I'd be lying in bed, eyes closed, almost asleep, and you hear it click and open. And... So that story really lived lived with me for several years. You know what I mean? Um, how long into like how far did you get into the story before you're like this was a mistake? This was uh, this just was a couple mistake. pages. Not not <laughs> far, not far at all. But I love that. Uh, I love that sense of being not quite terrified, you know, mm-hmm. but that sense of disquiet, right? Um, you look at say when I got when I got older and I discovered the Parker series uh, from uh, Donald Westlake writing as Richard Stark. Right, this is some of the most bleak stuff. It is not horror, but the outlook of the world that everyone there is um, corrupted in some way or other. You know what I mean? These are these are crime novels. But what draws me to that is just this absolute bleak outlook that everything is corrupted. Everything is affected. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that makes you go. Eh. Yeah. yeah. So, it's it's no, I was, I was going to say it's, it's like those little things, like those little, those little things that tell you that something's off um, mm-hmm. with, with, with the world that you're reading about. It's, it's those things that like, yeah, they don't terrify you, but you, they, they disturb you just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, I love those. I love those stories. And it's, it's, it's fun when you get them. I think like the one that had like a similar effect on me that you're talking about with like, the boogeyman is actually a Neil Gaiman story uh, called click clack the rattle bag. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. It is, it is three pages and it's literally the only story that I've ever read aside from uh, the only good Indian. That is the only short story I've ever read where when I finished it, I closed the book. I put it on the dashboard because I was riding in a car. Um, I was riding in a car somewhere. I put the book on the dashboard. And I just said, "Just, just drive." Like I can. Vi- I was visibly disturbed that to the point where the driver asked, "Like, are you okay?" And I'm like, "Just, just keep driving. Just, just. I don't want to. I don't want to like talk. I can't like really say anything right now. I'm just like, just keep driving." Um, but the only good Indians was like 
the first book in a very, very long time that flat out gave me nightmares. So oh my gosh, it's it's so good. And it is one of those things where I've hit a point in it that I I want to finish reading it, but I also want to you know let it sit with me for a little bit. I probably haven't opened it. Marinate. Yeah, just to let it kind of get there, right? So we uh, actually, it's just so funny why we freaked out was because you're actually our second guest to mention that book. And we already had said that that's going to be one of our book club episodes this season. We we love him. He's great. He's tremendous. I am, I am this, and this is my first book of his. I've, I've never read anything by him before. Uh, A good friend of mine, uh, <laughs> sorry guys, I'm dying over here. Oh, uh, no. mine, uh, named Paul Garth actually uh, recommended him to me. So uh, love it. Um, absolutely. And I picked up my heart as a chainsaw just uh, at the same time. So that's going to be uh, the next thing that I dive into. Seems, seems very reasonable. Seems, nice. seems on point. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, um, I, I got it too. I got it too. It's, it's after I finished like the novel I'm reading right now, my heart is a chainsaw is next on my list. So. Well, I, go through, I, I go through like, I, I love old detective novels, right? I love detective novels, mystery novels, but then they're, my reading turns into this weird place like Robert Block, who, the guy who wrote Psycho, right? I have copies of uh, Out of the Mouths of Graves, which is one of his great short story collections, okay? Um, and night world and the kidnapper and all of these like mid-century just insanely dark novels that you think what in the world this is the night you know written in the 1950s where did this come from and uh how did how did middle america respond to this you know with some of his books they didn't respond at all nobody found them um but they're insanely dark and insanely good in a lot of ways, especially I will say Night World is very good. Always like finding those authors where you're like, how did you get away with this? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm happy, but like, how did you get away, how did you get away with this? On the completely opposite end of the spectrum, uh, what's the last book you read that left you with a positive impression of the world? Oh, gosh, I don't really read that kind of thing. Um- right? <laughs> Get, we get that from time to time, but there's always like some there's like there's something that like leaves you with maybe not like all the all the world's happy and cheery, but it leaves you with like a little bit of hope for humanity. Yeah, bit. like a little bit of hope. Maybe, maybe Mark Westmoreland's Violent Gospel. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Maybe. Um, I mean, every you know, people live in that one. Um, <laughs> so people survive. I think that's one of the things that that strikes me about noir is that it's you know it's all about choices and it's all about living with those choices afterward whatever comes right so um even even with with books that maybe leave a little hope at the end um a lot of times that's not necessarily my style i think uh and I need I, everyone to die in fire and carnage and bloodshed and all the awful things, or I'm not happy. Not happy. Well, it's like, uh, you know, not necessarily. Like, it doesn't even have to be. Uh, I'll give you an example. There is a, a story, and I will say this, and I hope it doesn't sound egotistical. Uh, soon, and I think it's tomorrow, 
uh, Rock in a Hard Place, Seven Drops, and it has the best story that I have ever written in it. It's called Negative Tilt, and it is about a, uh, a repossession investigator who is, or a repo agent, who has to uh, repo a former uh, co-worker's car, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. But the, the, you know, there's no overt violence in it whatsoever. Nobody dies, but it's just things start bad and they go worse, you know? Um, and I think that that's one of those, one of those things when you talk about choices in fiction is, I mean, how do you fuck that character up? You know, how do you, how do you mess them up? All right. You could take it, you know, um, my friend, uh, Bo, who will, who writes about uh, uh, Bishop Ryder, if you, if you know Bo Johnson at all, um, you know, he gave, he gave uh, Bishop, I think he took a leg, right? He, he, the guy lost a leg. Well, so I figure I can't take like a, like a limb from anybody that might be derivative again, right? (laughs) um, What, what can you take away from this person? What can you take away from this character? And sometimes damaging them uh, via their self-respect or via something that defines them, you know? Um, And I I know that you guys know this, like if you take away somebody's job, if you take away, so I'm a newspaper guy. I've been, I've been hired. I've been fired. I've quit jobs. I have, you know, uh, I've told, uh, publishers to go take a flying fuck at a rolling donut before. Um, so here's the thing. I've always considered myself a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether or not I'm working for somebody. But if you take that away from me, if you take that sense of identity, like that's damaging. And that's, that's stuff I'm interested in. That's stuff I'm, I'm interested in. Like, how does that damage you? And where do you go from there once you've hit rock bottom? with your sense of self and self-respect. And I feel like I'm holding forth too much. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's no, perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the psychological damage that could affect a person. Absolutely. Terrifying. Yeah. I think there was, um, so Victor Frankel, I think uh, man search for meaning. He has a, like in one of the sections of it, he, he talks about, <laughs> I think, I think this was him. He has, he talks about a story where um, a prisoner coming into a concentration camp or like someone who was being interrogated, um, he like had everything like his his diploma his books his publications um like everything that he had done over the course of his life like all the material like things that all the material awards that he had um laid out on a table and the person talking to him said is this all you have and he said yes and then the person just swept it off and put it in the garbage and said fine now you have nothing and it's a similar thing of like that's like that's a way you break somebody if they if they have nothing if they don't have like uh, an independent self, self an independent sense of self-worth um so like it's it's terrifying to see that and i really want to read that story i was looking for it earlier I, I i didn't know if it had dropped yet but i'm looking for that so thanks for letting me know yeah good to know Rock in a hard place number seven Be yep. prepared to have your soul crushed <laughs> um so kind of a follow-on question because you mentioned um you mentioned a very good way of uh telling publishers to go fuck themselves um sorry made- flying fucking a rolling donut is amazing by the way anyway so, so keep going. that's an old kurt vonnegut thing 
Oh, really? Really? Absolutely. I've never oh, I'm heard sad that. I didn't recognize that. Oh, okay. Well, you could have just stolen it. We would have <laughs> <laughs> we thought it was just yours, but I guess, yeah. okay, fine. You want to attribute to Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah. Fine, yeah. do that. Um, yeah. Father Kurt, hey. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of Indianapolis's finest citizens. Uh, and then, uh, but what made you decide to write and publish? Because you were a journalist before, but then it's like it's it's a little bit of a different like career shift to write for a newspaper and then write for uh, fiction and write books as you do. Well, I can't sing or dance. <laughs> um, so, um, here's here's the thing. Like I, I had some early success. I'm an old man. I, I just turned. Uh, gosh, I keep saying I just turned. Uh, last year I turned fifty. So. Um, when I was young, I thought that I was going to set the world on fire writing, uh, wrote a couple of novels, um, wrote some short stories that, that got published, picked up, and, and but we're talking over 20 years ago now, right? Um, there was a point where I was, I was done, okay? Just completely fucking finished. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I'll try my hand at self-publishing some things, right? So I self-published a novel back in 2011, 2010, 2011, called Prodigal, all right? Which is the story of a uh, down-and-out rock star, a guitarist who has lost the use of his left arm, all right? And, uh, you know, it's a little hard to play guitar if you can't use your left arm, right? Uh, He returns to his small South Alabama hometown, and rekindles a love affair with his first love, who happens to be married to his brother, a uh, a local police officer. So a lot of fun. Um, yeah, fun. We, yeah, we may have different definitions of fun. Um, and you know, the book did what what a lot of self published books do. It sank like stone, right? Um, and that was that was really it for me. I felt like eh, it's done. I'm not going to, not going to do it. So <laughs> the pandemic happened, um, or as, as it's known around our house, the pandemic. Um, so the pandemic happened and I was able to stay home, uh, because of, of, uh, certain factors. I was able to stay home with my kids and help them through virtual school. Um, while I did that, I, I got uh, a story accepted. I just kind of was like, eh, okay, I've got these stories laying around because you never stop writing, right? I mean, if, even if you're done trying to publish traditionally, you're never, you're, you never stop writing. So uh, I sent off story to the dark city uh, out of, uh, I believe, Oregon, Washington, one of those two, right? Uh, they took it, and uh, that was the start of of a really fun couple of years of hearing yes a lot you know um i wrote uh in rapid succession wrote probably 15 16 short stories over the course of a year uh you know farming them out and uh the thing is i feel like i have stories inside me that need to be told that that need an audience and i think that it's finding an audience for those stories is, is the act of completion. You know what I mean? Writing them feels great, but knowing that somebody has found those stories and that there's an audience for them, that's, that's the, that's the reason I think. Yeah. To like share those, 
share that work, share your art. And I mean, there's sometimes there's, you know, a fun, fun part of, oh, this is going to weird so many people out. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's half the fun, though. Yeah, just like, I promise you, I'm okay. Mostly. It's, it's, it's always, it's always good to see if you can get a reaction out of like the people that are really closest to you. Like if, if the people that are really closest to you read this and they still understand that you're normal and okay, then that's when they, that's when you know that they love you. Um, if, if, if they take a different look at you after that, that's when, you know, it's kind (laughs) of like, maybe I need to talk to you a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) or they start edging away from you, you know, like, I don't know. Um, I've de- I've oh, look at the look at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> definitely had that happen. <laughs> Jesus, um, that doesn't really make sense though. But um, kind of just gonna skip ahead to a certain question. When you um, so you were saying that you have like stories that you want to t- tell. What is one story you've always wanted to write or see in writing? Um, I really think that the. That's a good question. Let me, you know, I started, I started to, to say something, but I'm going to back up. I think it's a really good question that I need to chew on for a second. Um, I think that one of the stories that I am very well equipped to tell that I haven't seen a whole lot of is that here in the changing South and believe it or not, it is changing a little bit slowly, right? Um, like Methuselah changes his underwear very slowly, very, very slowly. So just going to make Nathan eventually pop out of the frame there. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, um, here, here's the thing. The South is just different. Flannery O'Connor would tell you one thing she had. uh, And I actually used to be the managing editor for the Milledgeville Union Recorder. Back in the day, I have been to Flannery O'Connor's house several times. Really cool place. Um, I am so jealous. <laughs> so cool. It really was. And, and I love her work, right? But I also think that sometimes we have to be really careful uh, for people who are carrying the, the baton of Southern writing to not just stay there, right? Like for me growing up, truly poor. Uh, I always tell people that I grew up poor in the deep South and by poor, I mean, we would have been dirt poor, but we would have had to have dirt trucked in and we couldn't afford that. Right. That's, that's where we were. Um, So that kind of like dog groveling poor, like where you are dependent on a, uh, on a, a Franklin stove that you found in a junkyard and repaired one of the, one of the legs to stand in your dining room so that you could have heat in the house for, uh, for the winter. Right. So, um, that kind of, of poor where it's not just about whether or not you have money, it's about how you think about money, right. Where when you have a little bit extra money, you're going to, hey, you might be able to buy an, you know, an extra pack of underwear at Walmart, you know, and that's a splurge for you, that kind of thing, right? Um, like to me, that's so down and that's so hard, that's difficult to get into. 
then there's the fact that you have poor white people and poor black people in the South who live jowl by, you know, cheek by jowl, right? You are right there in the shit with each other. And everybody in the world is trying to make sure that you guys make know, know your differences and, you know, you get buried in the shit of racism and of every other ism that there is when what you are facing is a lot more, uh, a lot more similar than either side would like to think about. Does that make sense? Like stuff like that yeah. is what I'm really interested in. Those are the stories that I would like to tell. Yeah. I think that there's so much like, there's so many layers to those sort of like, I'm trying to think of like the best way to phrase it, but there's so many layers to those discussions. There's so many layers to those kind of social uh, socioeconomic dynamics that mm-hmm. I think people don't have the privilege to really deal with. Don't have the, like, because if your focus is I just need to eat tomorrow you're not trying to unpack your own biases and your own whatever and like unpack the politics of where you live and pay attention to local elections. Like that's not your priority. Being able to pay attention is a privilege. So I think having more of those stories that kind of unpack those is important. 100%. And the other part about that too is like, and this is one of, one of the things uh, I guess I can go ahead and plug this. Let me cut <laughs> you know who Libby is. Um, Libby Cudmore is a writer. She uh, writes, she wrote The Big Rewind, a mystery novel. Um, Came out, I think, 2016, 2018, somewhere around there. Um, She also writes for Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Um, She and I are are partnering together and trying to push writers to do a passion project, to do the thing that scares them. When I talk about race and class and money, uh, in the South. And I, and I start to write about that kind of thing. It scares the shit out of me. And it scares me because I don't know that I'm good enough. As a matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that I'm not good enough to write that, but I'm also in the shit with it, uh, every day trying to get it written. So, uh, that's kind of, you know, I mean, those are stories I think that are incredibly powerful and, and, and incredibly important, but, uh, Hopefully I'll be up to the task of, of writing that. Yeah. And I think also if you take it as like an opportunity to learn and like kind of examine your own kind of stances and like, however, like go through those issues by doing this project, like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's still a good thing. Absolutely. And I, think, and I think also like the kind of what you were talking, kind of what Kirsten was talking about, like the ability to pay attention is a privilege by writing it and by actually telling the side of the story you're bringing it to the attention of people who otherwise would not hear it. And also even by chance of like getting in the, uh, getting it in the hands of someone who is living it, that's also a chance for them to like step outside of themselves and actually get like a broader perspective of it. I think there was actually, so like after JD Vance uh, did Hillbilly Elegy, like, like I read the book and I thought I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. What I was really fascinated by was the fact that a bunch of Appalachian writers and poets and academics wrote an entire book in response to mm-hmm. J.D. Vance just saying, like, you're wrong. You have no idea what this region's like, mm-hmm. um, which was even better to me because 
it's like you're actually getting the views of people who still live there as opposed to my grandparents live there and like i i carry like some of the stigmas quote unquote um which yeah, yeah. What, what you're and talking I, about is fantastic yeah and especially because like just to piggyback off nathan when you're looking at those sorts of stories a lot of it is stereotypes or like if you're just thinking about representation in media right a lot of it is stereotypes that doesn't really like fully examine those interplays of human relations and like the like all of those like issues that are happening and how they all interact with each other so you can pick up you can go to any bookstore and find like twenty five thousand books on life in new york city and like as someone (coughs) living in new york city i love that but like not everyone does so like you don't, you're like, I think people have a pretty mediaized version of what life is like in the Northeast, but not necessarily, like, we're still working on building out our understanding of other areas, you know? Right. And one of the things that that I want is for people to be able to pick up my books and say, that guy, that character, not not necessarily that guy, meaning me, but that character or that character or or this person over here. I see myself in that. I see myself on the page there. And I've never seen that before in a book. You know, I want I want people to see that. Yeah. Which is really important. Yeah, it's beautiful. So like talk to us kind of a little bit about a day in life. Like how do you divide your time between projects? How do you stay motivated if something gets stuck? Um, All right. Well, first I get up and I strangle the children. Wait, no. Okay. <laughs> just, just kidding. Just kidding. Left turn. Okay. Okay. Homer Simpson, whatever. <laughs> Log off the call. Call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't have an address. Damn it. My, my, my wife is on the couch right across from, from me. I had to, I had to do that. Just, to, just to see, you know, she is shooting me the look. So, um, because I am a parent of, of two, uh, very smart and very rambunctious young boys. Uh, one is 10, one is seven. Um, and I'm taking donations and prayers, believe me. Um, I get up, uh, when I am writing, I try to get up about five, or I'm sorry, 4.45 and uh, do the 5 a.m. writers club thing. All right, so I write for an hour or a thousand words, whichever comes first. Um, when I am really cooking on a project, I'm probably clocking in at about 1500 to 1700 words in an hour, because I believe that, uh, especially on first draft, right. You're throwing kitchen sink. You're, you're getting, you're getting your word count done. Um, and from there it's, uh, get the kids to school, um, day job of being a journalist may come in there, but then. Also, during that time, there is uh, time to play, if that makes sense, like time for me to think about the writing at that point, right? If I've got the kids off to school and I don't have a a deadline pressing for the day job, that's when I can kind of either doodle on a a moleskin notebook or I can make notes for uh, the next story. Sometimes... the big thing for me, the day in the life part is get up, get coffee, write. Then for me, it is super, super essential to try to write first thing in the morning because that's when I'm fresh. That's when the world hasn't crept in. You know, once the world starts creeping in, my word count just uh, crashes. 
because uh, I'll give you an example. Um, over the weekend, uh, and I have not been writing this weekend because I've been sick, but over the weekend, uh, my Saturday evening got screwed up because a, a fairly famous local figure got, uh, got arrested for trying to run over his uh, currently separated wife or the wife that he's the wife he is currently separated from. Um, ah, joy. Yes. It's uh, Jay Barker, the former quarterback for the Crimson Tide, married to country singer Sarah Evans. So. No. Excellent. Please, no. <laughs> I love Sarah Evans. Damn it. No. So, uh, and, and I mean, just uh, Nathan, just so you know, he, he did miss. He did miss. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but his aim may get better. So <laughs> the the rest of that, I mean, like things may break any time during the day. And the way that my newspaper works is that I am theor in theory, I am and in title, I am the sports editor, but I also pitch in on the news side. So uh, this past weekend, our uh, staff writer was getting married, and I was the guy who was on duty uh, to try to get things covered. So, like, it really, it it really depends on the day in the life. But if I can, I like to write first draft first thing in the morning, and then before I go to bed, I will reread what I have written and pray that it makes sense. Maybe make some edits. Um, once first draft is done, it's it's totally different. At that point, I feel like I can go back to it at any time during the day because the body's already there and you're just kind of chipping away. Uh, at the editing. Thing, right? So yeah. you're, that's probably a really boring answer and I apologize. That was not a boring answer at all. We had many twists and turns. It was fantastic. Um, that was, that but was that, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that makes sense. I, uh, I am in awe of your word count span because I am so slow, but like, so well done you. That's incredible um, that that's your right when you're in the zone. Um, but yeah, uh, when you're, so you kind of mentioned like once you get into the editing process is a little different. So mm. when you're working with an editor or editors, what style do you prefer when someone is looking at your work? Do you want someone to just like college professor attack it with a red pen do you want um someone to just kind of be like subtle hints do you want more of a hands-off hands-off approach what works for you and what doesn't um what i really like is for them to go this is perfect this is wonderful i love it here's the check we all <laughs> okay outside of the dream world <laughs> <laughs> or like that one in a million shot <laughs> okay so uh, and it really depends on the story um, I'll give if you don't mind, I'll give you a couple of, of anecdotes here. Okay. Yeah, sure. I've, had, I've had two different experiences over the last couple of years that really stood out to me. Okay. Um, number one, I am, uh, I'm super straightforward about giving other people feedback when it comes to writing. Um, so I like straightforward feedback, right? Um, I, I don't necessarily like, oh, you maybe should change this. You should think about blah, blah, blah. Right. That doesn't really work for me because if I should just maybe do that, then I don't want to do that. Um, Suze J uh, at Flash Fiction Magazine uh, accepted a story of mine um, called Never See the Stars Again. 
and when it and it's a thousand words and when it came back to me there might have been 50 words that were not in red i mean she bled all over that thing and still liked the story enough to to accept it right but it was also just a process of holy shit and she liked this story and she you know um she said listen these are the things i that I think these are the things I know should be changed. And, and so she was incredibly thorough with that. And I loved that. Um, and I could go through it and go, okay, this makes sense. No, this isn't really my voice or, you know, um, no, this is not what I meant to say. I had this person use this word because they would misuse it. You know what I mean? So, um, I love that. I, I There wasn't really a ton of back and forth. It was more, here are the edits I want to make. Please, you know, let, let's talk about this and get it done. And I'm also, I look at writing as work. Okay. So writing for me, uh, if you give me edits to make, I'm not going to sit on them. I'm going to go try to get them done. Right. So within a couple of days, I had those edits and, and really smoothed the story out. And I think within a month, it was published. And uh, I, I think it was a pretty good story. Um, the, other, the other experience that I really liked uh, was with Rock in a Hard Place. First, I had sent Rock in a Hard Place, uh, this story that's coming out, Negative Tilt. I sent it to them because they said, even if it's a little long, we want to, you know, take a flyer. And well, they didn't mean 8,000 words. They meant, you know, if we want 5,000, maybe 5,500 is acceptable. Right? Slight difference. <laughs> no big deal. Hello. Okay, it's a little, is it a little long? Come on. Um, but totally, totally fair. When they reopened, by the time they reopened, I had cut it down to 5,200 words. All right. There you go. Um, yeah. They found it, uh, you know, they found it much more acceptable and then said, hey, listen, I would like it if you would take a look at these sections. And, you know, there's some there are a couple of things here coming off maybe the way you don't want them to come off. Um, and this is much more this much more um, theme oriented rather than grammatical or anything like that right um and so as i'm reading it back i'm like oh you know what i don't even need that part i think this part right here might just be uh might just be for me you know it doesn't necessarily have to go into the finished product so uh i ended up cutting the, those passages a couple of those passages just wholesale and the the version that will appear uh, in rock in a hard place, it ends up at 4,500 words. There so, you go. So, um, like I like the, I, I like the bleeding all over the page. I can get with that. Cause I've done that to people. I really also like the high level of, is this really where you want to go with this story? Does this really push the narrative in the way that you mean to, you know, both of those work for me. Yeah. It's the difference between like, content editing and like proofreading right yes. there's yes. there's a time and a place for both 
Absolutely. And I mean, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to. Uh, so I try to be super professional um, and people who reject my stories, even though they're incredibly dumb and terrible people and I hate them all. Um, I never tell them that I know, you know, I never email them and say, look, you son of a wounded dog. You, can, <laughs> you cannot, you cannot be serious about this. No. Um, the editors that I have, I have worked with, I have been really, really fortunate in that they have been either very good proofreaders or very good story wise. And as you said, content, you know, making sure that, that the story is everything that it can be from a style perspective. Those editors are always kind of a gift. Like it's <coughs> the ones that without a doubt, always make it better, whatever their style is. Like those are like yeah. ones that you, you need to hold on to. And those are the ones you can really trust with like, even some that you're not entirely sure about, you can mm -hmm. trust them to not just slough it off. They can say like, no, there's, there's, there's potential here. It needs a little bit of work, but there's potential here. And that, yeah. Those are the key ones, yeah. And the ones who like have the understanding of, oh, this needs content editing and this needs mm -hmm. proofreading because I have a hundred percent submitted something that needed content editing and someone was like, yeah, no, this is great. And did not content edit it. And I like was looking through their mm. edits being like, mm. Mm. <laughs> this, this, this need to work. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm usually pretty good on like the proofreading side. I, I produce pretty clean copy. Well, journalism. Uh, so yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Uh, I have a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with James D.F. Hanna, uh, I, yeah. I won't drop, don't drop it James's real name <laughs> but he he is he he picks on me constantly he's like I hate the fact that you can write sit down and write a uh, 3,000 word story in a day and 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 it looks perfect I'm like well I don't know what to do about that I can't help you um, my apologies for being good like feels like a you problem whatever <laughs> Well, the, the, the story that you read today, uh, in trouble, no more. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was written, uh, in about an hour and a half. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I hate, I hate to be crass with our guests, but sincerely <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I, am, I don't, I am so jealous. <laughs> I really just want to like mic drop and walk away. Like whatever. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm not salty. It's okay. I am not. I am not jealous at all. There is no envy no. in my heart. I am being completely upfront and honest with you. What I'm saying, Wait. you have, you have a fantastic <laughs> gift, but fuck you. I but mean, fuck you, dude. We were okay. Sorry, we. I can cut this. We were working on uh, what is something that I was writing. We did a podcast episode. It took me so long to write tooth like pull out this story from like the depths of my soul and i was like oh i'm so proud of myself i wrote 200 words today and you're like it's fine i took the story in an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> you all right here. we would, stay with you, the utmost respect would you would you like some inside baseball for that uh for that collection for that anthology uh, sure i mean so yeah. we, so so we actually had a bunch of the writers from Trouble No More okay. uh, do a crowdcast event. Like we recorded that as well. It'll come out okay. in season three. Um, but I mean, like we can like, yeah. decide when that's included. Yeah, but go on. So um, there was some some internal strife. Um, a an author potentially was going to withhold a story 
because of another of another author's story in the anthology. And I had I had missed the fucking deadline, right? I had I had not submitted anything. And Mark Westmoreland and I were talking, and essentially he asked, you know, hey, if this story drops out, can you uh, can you replace it for me? Absolutely, I can. Uh, what do you not have? And he sent me a copy of the of the book, you know, pre-publication. Hey, these are the stories. Well, okay, you guys don't have Whipping Post in here, and that's the Allman Brothers traditional, uh, you know, sender, yeah, en- encore, right? That that closes the show, and so I have a big enough ego that I was like, oh, I'll just do that. It'll be fine, <laughs> right? So. I sat down and really like I listened to the song a couple of times and I was like, oh, okay, I got it. Cool. Yeah. When I when I was when I was reading the story, I could like I could hear I could I could hear like sections of it still like playing in my head because I absolutely love Whipping Post. It's a it's a song that I know that I know I could never ever sing. And if I ever saw it performed live, I would probably just like melt into a puddle on the floor because it's just it's so good. Um, but yeah, no, it was good. I am. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I actually like Jason Isbell's version better. But that might get you know Westmoreland might kill me for that. So I actually haven't heard Jason Isbell's version, so I don't necessarily know. Um, but for, YouTube, yeah. it's on there. No, I, I figured I figured it would be, but I'm still just like I haven't I haven't actually I haven't heard it. But like for me, like the the it was it was, it was Dwayne Ullman, the one who the one who sang that one. I think, um, but like it was. It was just absolutely fantastic. Like it just, it gives you goosebumps the way he sings it. Um, absolutely. So, at you know, at, at 23, you have that much pain in your voice. Oh my God. Yeah, like I wasted my life. Um, <laughs> there, sorry, this is an unrelated note, but speaking of stupid covers that we didn't know existed. So yesterday I was at the gym. My friend was sending me music recommendations because nothing was hinting. And he was like, hey, we were just talking about Ice-T's metal band. Maybe you need that. And I was like, Ice-T has a metal band? Ice-T covered a Jimi Hendrix song. And I need us all to be aware that this is a thing. And it's not bad. I'm not going to say it's as good as the original. It's not bad. Good to know. Actually, fun fact. uh, Christopher Lee, the guy who played Saruman and Count Dooku, Mm -hmm. uh, had a metal band. Had a symphonic metal band. It 85 years old and wrote an you, album about Charlemagne. You know what? That surprises me far less than Ice-T metal <laughs> band covering a Jimi Hendrix song. It's Christopher Lee, who told Peter Jackson how a knife wounds out. Well, I mean, you know what? When you've got Peter Lee's credentials, you can you can tell people that. I mean... Yeah, Christopher Lee can say do whatever the fuck he wants, so him doing a metal band about Charlemagne is just like, yeah, okay. I mean, who's going to tell him no? Literally, literally no one. He did whatever he wanted up to like the age of like 95. And then death was just kind of like, and you're done. Uh, I feel like at that point he was like, I've done all I wanted to do. Death, you may now take me. I will go with you willingly. You didn't take me. I went with you. That's like. It's, 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 like, it's like the Theodore Roosevelt. It's like the quote about Theodore Roosevelt. It was like, of course, death had to take Teddy into sleep because there would have been a fight otherwise. Um mm-hmm. But uh, so speaking of success, you've been published, you've had a, you've had a successful career, both like your first half and then like now and kind of like your second half, um, <laughs> you're on track for more success. So looking at 
the literary world and your influences as you continue to gain notoriety who would you want your work to be compared to or like who are some of the authors that are like kind of in the kind of in the market nowadays that you really kind of uh would take as like an influence or someone that you really admire okay well let's get a couple of things out of the way first number one I love and admire Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, Razorblade Tears, The Blacktop Wasteland. Holy shit. Yes. The guy. The guy. Right? Uh, Number one, he can write. Number two, he has done a fantastic job of just capturing the moment, right? Of Mm -hmm. like, this is the perfect time to have uh, African American based noir slash, frankly, country redneck african-american noir you know i mean you you look at this what i was talking about about writing poor southerners he is doing that and he's doing an incredible job with it um that is the guy that i i am just like lead on man um he is tremendous uh i know him a little bit personally and one of the kindest people um i am incredibly incredibly uh impressed by everything he does i hate him a little bit you know i mean he's so good um i but so let me start off when i when when people read my stuff i hope that they see some influences of elmore leonard of larry block of uh, donald westlake and of robert b parker all right. There's also some Stephen King in there because he like, I cannot tell you uh, if I took you into my uh, study and showed you my my built ins, you would see every Stephen King novel uh, in hardback. Right. So every Robert B. Parker novel, every well, I, I can't say every Donald Westlake novel, but uh, I used to when I was single I, and I would have women over um which was never as often as I wished it were. Um, but I would get a lot of, have you read all of these books? And the answer like, was always, you know, yeah, I'm a pretty big nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, you could also just go with, yes, I took that quote about if they don't have any books, don't fuck them very literally. The bedroom is this way. <laughs> so, um, I mean, those are the people who, to me, like those four guys, Westlake especially, um, he was such a, a craftsman, right? You look at the, the, the work that he did, whether under his name or under as Richard Stark or Tucker Coe or whomever, you look at it, you read it now, it is just a piece of craftsmanship. Um, I'm over here drinking hot toddies, so I may be slurring. Um, but everything he did was so well put together and that's what I want. I feel like I fall far short of that. Um, but that's the kind of writing that I want people to think that I do. Um, I want to be able to write dialogue like Parker did, like, uh, like Robert B. Parker did where it's effortless, where it sounds like something that you believe a person can say. You know, um, I want to write Southern characters who were down and dirty and low down and mean like Harry Cruz wrote them, you know. Um, so those are people that I look at and I go, that's what I want to be. 
Um, and here is the other part, and I will say this because I've, I've mentioned his name a couple of times. Um, I'm going to give you a great thought about Stephen King, or at least I think it's great. He's, you know, this incredibly dark horror writer, right? Horror for the masses, Stephen King. But <laughs> um, I think that he wrote about love more than he ever really wrote horror stuff about, you know, what it means to truly love somebody else. And, and um, I think about stories like The Body, where you have four or five kids who the words never said, right? You never say, I love you as a 10-year-old kid to another 10-year-old kid, but it's there and it's it's written in there in that subtext so woven in so well that you see it and you feel it, right? Like, I want to be able to, to do stuff like that too. So those are people that I admire. Um, I, don't, I don't know that those are super uh, household names other than King and uh, Cosby these days. But I mean, that's, that's my aim is to be a craftsman and to do, do the work the best way I can. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, I think when you're looking at those sorts of horror novels, A, I think to be attractive to the masses, you have to write about human interaction in that kind of space. But two, mm -hmm. what, how people react in those types of situations says a lot and I think is can also be incredibly relatable to people so yeah I think that that just goes with the territory of you're writing about these characters these very rich characters within stressful situations how does that look like how do they deal with that but back to your work um do you have a sample for us from living the gimmick I do I do I do um I'm going to hold forth on living the gimmick for a second and you cut whatever you, you hate. Okay. Go for it. Um, <laughs> especially the coughing. Um, <laughs> so living the gimmick is set in the present day, but it is also set half of it is in the present day. Half of it is in the 1980s and 1990s world of professional wrestling. Okay. okay. Um, and so we are following, um, a retired professional wrestler who is now a bar owner in Birmingham. All right. So I will pick up just straight from chapter one. Um, I think, I think you'll like it. I hope you'll like it. <clears throat> Good chance. Closing time. When the lights come up, the music is silenced and the drunks go home. The tabs get paid. The regulars shuffle out the door and weave their separate ways home. Sometimes the couples come uncoupled recoiling in near horror at who or what they were considering taking home. Bright lights and last call are the enemies of the drunken hookup, except when they're not. I walked the last ones out, turned the locks closed behind them and emptied the tip jars, hit no sale on the cash register and changed singles out for 20s and 10s. The cash went in my wallet. I closed out the day and the register began spitting out its daily report on a long, narrow white spool of receipt paper. While it printed, I restocked the cooler. Two cases of Bud Light, a half a case of Miller, and another case of Coors. Wiped down the bar with a mostly clean damp rag and then poured the last of the coffee into a thick china mug. I put it at the end of the bar and sat down to read the tape. The tension in my shoulders eased as I read it. 
It had been a good night for a Tuesday. Might make my nut this month. Sip dark, bitter coffee and let the after-hour silence wash over me like a gentle wave. The banging at the door didn't startle me exactly. Plenty of patrons leave their wallet or their coats. I never open up after closing, though. They can reclaim their property the next day. It's all the same to me. But this knock was insistent. Whoever it was didn't plan on going away. He, it had to be a guy, would beat out shave and a haircut two bits and then alternate with long repeated paradiddles of a song I knew but couldn't place. I waited. He kept going for a full five minutes and I kept getting madder about it. Finally, I dragged ass off the stool and went to the frosted opaque door that said Donovan's public house in gilt letters. I unlocked the door and it swung it open. Ray Wilder grinned back, to, back at me. His bleached blonde hair swept back and gelled in place, wearing a tailored suit that must have cost more than my entire liquor inventory. He was wearing a camel's hair top coat, gold rim glasses, and he smelled of good bay rum. He swept past me into the bar and whipped off his knee-length coat. It's about time, he said. You always were a stubborn son of a bitch. Pour me a drink, would you? He took a seat next to the end of the bar and picked up the tape I'd been examining. Jesus, that's depressing. You used to make that just for walking in the building. I went to the liquor cabinet where I kept a bottle of Bushmills Black Label Single Malt Irish Whiskey and pulled it out along with a pair of glasses. I put one in front of Ray and poured a generous shot. My own was a little less generous. I knew the dangers of trying to keep up with Ray Wilder. The creases around Ray's eyes and mouth were deeper than I remembered. His hair was thinner and his body was thicker. His face was tanned and lined from age. The scar tissue on his forehead looked like pink taffy. He was 15 years older than me and still in the life. Looking good, champ, I said. We clicked glasses and he drained his in one gulp. I refilled it for him and he downed the next one too. After that, he didn't wait for me to offer the bottle. He grabbed it himself and poured dark amber liquor up to the rim. With two belts in him, he seemed a little calmer. His hands didn't shake this time when he raised the glass, and he sipped a little slower. You can lie to your friends, and I'll lie to mine, but let's not lie to each other, he said. Jesus, the drive from Atlanta, you remember it? I did. The straight shot down I-20 out of the city and into the scrub pines of western Georgia. That feeling of flying along the middle of nowhere with most of the exits dark and quiet after 10 p.m., the bump at the Georgia-Alabama line and the sound of tires whining over grooved rough pavement, a little more than two hours from Hartsfield International Airport to downtown Birmingham. You're on the Southern Loop this week. Yeah, the pay-per-view in Atlanta was tonight. Tomorrow we're here. Then Dothan and Pensacola finish up in Tallahassee. I shook my head, thinking of the lonely miles in the car. Professional wrestlers spend most of their lives on the road. I'd done loops like that for 20 years, took the money I'd saved and opened a bar. Ray, he was still at it. He didn't wrestle anymore, but he was still out there at ringside every night, managing some kid the company thought would be the next big thing. He still took bumps, selling his ass off for the good guys. I tuned in every now and then, and he was still just as magnetic as ever. When he was on the screen, it was impossible to look away. He was my best friend. It's not like you remember it, he said. It's all politics now. Whose ass you kiss, who your friends are. I tipped some whiskey into my coffee and swirled it around a little. It was always that way. You know that, 
He shook his head. You're not there, he said. It's worse. You can't do anything anymore. They don't want anyone to get over. They want the promotion to get over, not the performers. Do something to get yourself over that take you off TV. You getting heat? Nothing I can't handle, but I'll tell you, it changes the way the boys treat each other. We used to be on the same side. You remember that? Sure, I said. What I remembered most was that you picked your battles. You found guys who were like you, guys you could work with and trust, and you looked out for each other. The rest of the locker room was on its own, but Ray didn't remember it that way. He was still on the road, still making the towns and putting on better performances than wrestlers half his age. He'd spilled more blood, wrestled more matches, and banged more women than anybody I ever knew. If he remembered things differently than me, what of it? It was a long way and a lot of lonesome miles out of the life. Ray was still there, still running after the spotlight, still chasing the money. Now they got rules, I mean real rules, not like what we used to have. You know, you can't blade anymore. They had a cage match tonight, nobody bled. A cage match without blood is like a kiss without a squeeze, baby. It's not like it was. We can't bleed, we can't cheat. I'll tell you, it's almost like having a real job. So do something else. <coughs> Ray took a look around the silent bar with its ghosts of patrons not long departed. I knew what he was seeing. The champ was a guy who liked to party, who never let anybody else pay for his drinks, who stayed up all night just because he could. He'd been in bars all over the world. My place wasn't much different than the saloons we'd run through 20, maybe 30 years before. You mean like this, Ray said. Sling drinks for punk kids, do all that customer service shit, buddy, you're a better man than me. That was never in doubt, I said, and we both laughed. But I didn't like the way Ray's words made me feel small, as if there was something vaguely embarrassing about what I was doing. What's wrong with it? He kept looking. The bar where we sat was made of, was made of oak and worn smooth by time and use an L-shaped thing that ran nearly the entire length of the narrow building. The stools were sturdy, swivel-seated things, and the tables scattered around the room were two tops with matching black hardback chairs. There was a small stage, little more than a platform, where undiscovered musicians played sometimes for tips and watered-down drinks. Along the far wall was a line of high-back booths, so you could feel like you had some privacy. Beyond them, a small door led to a game room, with a pair of pool tables and an old pinball machine that worked almost as often as it didn't. The whole thing wasn't much, but it was mine. There's nothing wrong with it, Ray said after a while. He shook his head, laughed to himself. You always wanted something like this. You own the building? Yeah, got a couple of apartments upstairs too. Ray nodded at the numbers on the tape. At what you make every night? No, I said, but it's pretty good for a Tuesday. Toward the weekend, it picks up a good bit. Jesus, it'd have to. Ray drummed his fingers on the table. I heard the tap, tap, tap of his Gucci loafers on the hardwood floor. There was something weighing on his mind. Ray was rarely nervous, and when he was, he couldn't keep it in long. I figured he'd tell me what it was eventually. It's good to have something. I never had anything beyond this, you know. He didn't wait for me to respond. Hell, I never wanted anything beyond this. I don't know. Maybe my daddy didn't love me enough, but I never got my fill of it. You come out from the curtains and the crowd goes wild. Don't you miss it? Did I miss it? The wrestling business is all consuming. 
When I walked away from it, it was like I'd left a part of my soul, as if some important part of me had been amputated. Could I tell Ray that sometimes I walked around the empty bar and cut promos on non-existent opponents? Could I tell him that sometimes I still tried my old wrestling trunks and boots on, sucked in my gut and pretended that I wasn't 50-something years old, acting like a kid playing dress-up? Sometimes I looked in the mirror at my own scarred forehead and wondered why I'd done it. And then I'd think about the crowd screaming for my head. I'd think about the lights and the sweat and the blood. I'd remember the flights and the food and the booze and the women. Every morning when I woke up, I was in pain. My neck, my back, my hips, and my knees ached constantly. And if you asked me if, I was, if it was worth it, I'd tell you, yes, God damn it, every moment had been worth it. And Ray wanted to know if I missed it. Sometimes, I told him, mostly I miss riding around in the Learjets and the limousines. He laughed. I miss that, too. You know what I rented when I got to Atlanta? A goddamn Toyota. We wouldn't have been caught dead in a Toyota. That made me grin. The hell you say, I saw you pull up one night in Meridian, Mississippi, in an AMC Gremlin. Ray, Ray tossed off the rest of his drink. It was different. I drove the damn Mercedes off that levee by accident. You know that. Left the keys in it, too. I wonder whatever happened to it. That was the life right there. It was the 1980s and the era of conspicuous consumption. If Ray wrecked a car, he went out and leased another one. He didn't finance anything. He didn't have to. He was making a million dollars a year as the world champion and flying into St. Louis, Portland, San Francisco, Dallas, Tampa, Atlanta. The road was his home and the money piled up. I'd been in the business for a couple of years myself before we met, and I was bringing home a thousand a week in a little backwater promotion out of Pensacola, Florida. When Ray pulled up to that arena in that gremlin, it changed my life. Ron Baskin was the promoter, a lanky Tennessee hillbilly who'd bought the territory from his cousin and was busy upgrading everything from the rings we used to the arenas we ran. He wanted everything to be first class, but on a budget. So he paid to have the world champion come into the territory every time he could get dates for him. Ray usually drove himself from town to town. But when he wrecked that Mercedes, Baskins approached me in the locker room and asked if I'd drive the champ for the rest of the tour. Back in those days, driving the champion around was considered an honor, and I was glad to take on the duty. But with Ray, it was also a bit of a trial. He never slept. After the matches, we'd stop at the nearest gas station and buy a case of beer. By the time we got to Ray's hotel, he'd be lubricated and ready to hit the bars for a couple of hours. But a couple of hours was never enough. We'd find ourselves closing the place down and bringing the party back to Ray's room, where he'd finally fall asleep at six in the morning. Those drives in those days were long. Ray would catch a few hours of sleep in the hotel, work out, and then sleep in the back seat while I drove him to the next stop. There were days that were nothing more than a blur, where I'd had as little sleep as him, but I was the one who was behind the wheel, struggling to keep my eyes open all the time. But I did the job for him, got him to the arena safe and sound, and kept up with him on the nights when the neon called and nobody went to bed. It also helped that he liked my work in the ring and on the microphone. So when a job opened up in his home territory, he pulled a few strings and I was in. That's when the craziness really started. Ray would walk out onto the set of the Unlimited Championship Wrestling dressed in a tailored navy blazer and gray slacks. His tasseled loafers probably cost more than my first car. His crisp, crisp white shirt shone on the monitor like an angel's wings. 
he'd hold the title belt in two hands, proudly displaying the world championship for the fans to see and appreciate. And then he'd talk the fans into the building. He'd get them to give up their hard-earned coin to go watch the world's heavyweight wrestling champion. And then he'd add a little something extra. Now tomorrow night, I'll be in Las Vegas, Nevada, staying at the Sands Resort and Casino, darling. I'll have my best friend, Alex Donovan, with me. And I want all you young ladies to know that if you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we'll be looking for some company. No husbands, no boyfriends. Leave them at home, girls, and you'll have the time of your lives. The next night, we showed them why we belonged in Sin City. There were so many women in the hotel lobby that we had to fight to get up to the room. Eight young women made it into the elevator with us, and one of them was sporting a black eye. Ray's shirt was torn and his belt was missing. The fly on his slacks was open. I had been groped, kissed, and hugged. One of my shoes was missing. Jesus Christ, I said. I think I had more sex in the lobby than I've ever had in my life. One of the women on the elevator looked at me with cool brown eyes and said, You ain't seen nothing yet. Her name was Pam, and she had me naked before we even got to the room. Lord knows I went willingly enough, and by the time we stepped inside Ray's suite, she'd shed all of her clothes, too. That was the start, and there were hundreds of nights like it afterward. Ray wasn't just the life of the party. He was the party. One time I woke up in the same bed with him, the bodies of three women separating us. Neither, neither of us remembered what had happened. We never mentioned it. And I left all of that behind. It had been five years since I'd set foot in the ring. I wasn't too injured, wasn't too old. I was just done. There comes a day when you realize that you look like shit in your trunks, that no amount of good lighting can hide the toll of the, that the road and the bumps and the bruises and that kind of life takes on you. When that happens, you just have to get out. In my saner moments, I was glad I'd gotten out when I did. It was too easy to see myself in Ray Wilder's shoes, riding an endless loop of appearances around the country and the world spending money faster than I could make it so that the road became a treadmill. I could never get off. Ray's nickname was Wild Child, and it fit him. He often told people that he'd never retire from the business. The truth was that he couldn't. He was a wrestler. He didn't know how to do anything else. We sat at the bar for a couple of hours, old friends passing the time together, but he never told me what was on his mind. Eventually, the bottle of Irish was gone, and so was I. Ray stood up from the bar to put on his coat. Other than a slight reddening of his eyes, I couldn't see that the alcohol had much effect on him. I wobbled him to the door, unlocked it, and opened it. He walked outside, but turned around to hug me before he left. I wanted to talk with you about something, he said. I don't... The gunshot sounded loud, and blood and brain matter sprayed my face. I threw up my arm, but not in time. I should have closed my eyes. I watched my best friend fall across the threshold of the bar I owned, saw half of his head missing. His bleach blonde hair was soaked with blood and his one good pale eye rolled in its socket and his Gucci loafers beat an unsteady beat against the floor. His breath hitched and hitched again. I watched his chest. Somewhere, someone's, someone was moaning, no, 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 over again. And it took me a minute to realize that it was me. I grabbed Ray's hand, squeezing, begging him to squeeze my fingers back to let me know that he knew I was there. And then his chest stopped moving. Someone must have called 911. I don't know who. I couldn't do it. I kept holding Ray's hand. 
as long as I held him. He wasn't really gone. The paramedics finally pried my hand loose from his and moved me to one of the straight back chairs near the stage. They checked me for injuries while I watched them load Ray's body onto an ambulance. I don't remember if I responded. When it pulled away, there was no siren. That's when I accepted that my best friend was dead. He'd been murdered right in front of me, and I didn't do anything about it. I watched the crime scene people come and take measurements, pictures, the whole nine yards. Time passed. <coughs> I'm not sure how much, but the dark night, night sky was lightening toward purple by the time they were done. I sat in the chair and didn't move, didn't speak, didn't do anything. I could have called someone, I suppose, but it didn't seem to matter much now. He's in shock, one of the paramedics told a plainclothes cop. I don't think you're going to get much out of him. I'm fine, I said. My voice sounded very far away, as if it were coming from underwater. The cop asked for my ID, and I dug my wallet out of my back pocket and passed it over. He looked, saw my name, and recognized it from the name on the pub door. I didn't say anything else. Sure you are, the cop said. Have you got keys for this place, Mr. Donovan? I did somewhere. The paramedic found them in my right front pocket. She took them and passed them over to the cop. The two of them helped me up and we went outside and I watched them lock up. They ushered me toward the back of, the se of a second ambulance. No, I said. You need to go to the hospital, the paramedic said. Her name tag, her name tag said Styes in bold black blocky, blocky letters. No. Sir, you're in shock. Him, I pointed to the cop. I'll go with him. They exchanged glances. Hell, I got a question him anyway, the cop said, and escorted me to his car. I got in the back, ducking my head to keep from smacking it against the low window frame. The cop shut the door behind me and I looked back at my bar, Donovan's public house in flowing red neon. It should have meant something to me, but the sign felt unfamiliar somehow as if either it or I had become untethered from reality. I leaned against the back seat of the cop cruiser and closed my eyes. I didn't know where we were going next. And I'll stop there. I I really like the scene you're setting so far. I can definitely feel those like what you were mentioning before about like the psychological like how do you break a person without like mm -hmm. act like physically breaking them? Like mm -hmm. those themes starting to come in. Yeah. so much of the way that this was written is just chilling and really really fascinating and um i, I love it i'm really looking forward to picking this up once it's once it's out um we've got a couple of we got a couple of questions for you about about this book and then like kind of also about like your broader work as well um okay you've still got a little bit of time for us um, sure yeah um so first question kind of discussing living the gimmick where did the novel, where did the idea for this particular novel come from? I believe I saw you and a few other authors uh, discussing a love of professional wrestling on Twitter a while back. Um, mm -hmm. So has this been like a long burning project that you've had, or is this something that's only come up, come to mind within like the past year or so? I had a version of this kind of uh, coming into my head for probably several years, right? Um, and my idea, and I don't know if either one of you are familiar with wrestling at all. I grew up a, a big wrestling fan. It was the one thing that my dad and I had in common for many, many years. 
we would sit down at 5.30 on Saturday afternoons to watch Southeastern Championship Wrestling out of Dothan, Alabama, okay? Um, and we would go to live cards together. I mean, it's, you know, really great memory for, for me. Um, but I saw uh, the essentially the beginning of the, of the career of a guy named Arn Anderson, all right, who is uh, best friends or on TV was best friends with a guy named Ric Flair, who probably everyone has heard of Ric Flair. I yes. Would, I, would hope, maybe. I, I, I was thinking of Ric Flair as you were describing uh, so, Ray Wilder. So that is essentially uh, the friendship, right, is Arn Anderson, Ric Flair style friendship. Best friends all through uh, Donovan's career. Um, and essentially the, the story came to me and man, what if Arn Anderson saw Ric Flair get killed in front of him? What would he do? You know, how, how would that affect him? And then, so on the surface, uh, and hopefully this, you know, won't sound too ridiculous on the surface. It's a, it's a crime novel, right? Uh, trying to solve your best friend's murder. Um, hopefully it's also an examination of uh, friendship and how sometimes you think you know somebody, but maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know who they really are. Maybe, uh, maybe along the, the journey of trying to find who murdered uh, Ray Wilder, uh, Donovan's going to have uh, some unpleasant surprises. Maybe. Maybe. It's a possibility. May happen. <laughs> Maybe. May happen. Could happen. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. So. Yeah. Um, one thing we've kind of noticed from a short survey of your work is that you seem to like operating in multiple environments. Uh, your story in Trouble No More occurs in backwater bars and motel rooms. The Swahili word for hope is based in a university or academic setting. Your upcoming novel is set in the world of pro wrestling, um, as we've just been discussing. So is there something in particular that drives you to try writing in so many settings? Or are they just all these places that you've wanted to explore, places that you have experience with? And how do you manage to switch those environments while still trying to maintain the authenticity of your stories? Um, I, stop asking me such good questions. Um, like I have to really think about this, this stuff here. Um, I mean, the, the easy answer is I just write what comes to mind, you know, um, probably a, a good part of it is this. I, because I have that journalism background, right? I mean, I, I've, I've got a journalism background, so I have, uh, familiarity with an academic setting. Uh, you know, I grew up as a pro wrestling fan, dabbled in it some as a, uh, as, as a young man. Um, I actually, over the last few years, I've been a, uh, you can't tell it by my voice now, but I was the lead announcer for a, a small pro wrestling promotion calling the action, if you will. Um, that's cool. No, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, I've also been a bartender. I've been, uh, I've done public relations work for a major university. So um, it, it's, you know, I'm almost always using a background of some sort that I am at least a little bit familiar with. Um, and 
I'm I'm lucky that I have a pretty good memory. So, um, and you know, you you just a lot of times you want those details, enough details for verisimilitude, right? Mm-hmm. A little, you know. So hopefully, I I succeed at that. Knock on knock on wood. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a chance to just kind of explore different things, right? So you even if you want to stick, like even if you wanted to stick, right, with like the southern um mm-hmm. only that there's it's not like there's one small town in the right. south right there's so many different things so it's nice to be able to like explore different actually, aspects that that is uh that is a misconception there actually is only one small town we just move it around for the northern <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a there's a phrase in, <laughs> yep the, there's a it's, a it's a similar thing to there's there's a phrase in the marine corps that there's only one thief in the marine corps everyone else is just trying to get their shit back Exactly. Um, that's, that's, that's so funny. Um, yeah, this is the thing though. Nathan and I both grew up in small towns. I grew up in a town ta- like my for when I was born, we lived around eleven acres of timber, and our nearest neighbor was a mile away. So we could call you on that joke because yeah, we know the small town rivalries. I, I, li- I literally grew up down the block from a cornfield, like, and then yeah, it's so yeah, it's, it's all corn. I grew up across the street from a cemetery. Oh, I did too. That's way better. I did too. That's way better. I had a cornfield by the cemetery and then a really <laughs> old rusted children's playground across the street too. Nice. That's great. So we had a, we had a cotton field, you know, I mean, like this is really deep South. There was a cotton oh, field. Yeah. Anywhere, wow. so. yeah. No, this is so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how like small towns like affect that, but it's like also like, because, because you are you're so comfortable different, like I can talk because you're so comfortable operating in like such different environments, it also allows you to talk about like different aspects of the changing South, kind of like what you were talking about, where it's, you can talk about the fact that it's like, you know what? So like, even like aspects of like the university of Alabama are changing or um, the fact that, you know, Birmingham is not what it once was. Like, I remember, I remember like driving through Birmingham and I was thinking like, this is not the city that I thought it was. But again, it was like back in 2007, 2008. So I know it's probably changed. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's you you get to talk about like like the urban areas of the South as well as like the side that probably is a little bit more educated than others as well as like the very, very poor sections of it. So like being able to operate in those different sections is a very good asset to you. And I'm like, I'm really, really excited to see because I mean, I'll be I'll be completely honest. Like, I haven't been tracking you as much as I should, and I really regret that now. Um, yeah. So, so since JB like kind of recommended you to us, I was like, I, I started checking out a little bit more, and I'm really, really happy I did, and I really want to see where you go from here. So, yeah, I think one thing like to piggyback off of him again, um, you're very good at kind of figuring out the social norms between the two. Like the care, like you don't have your characters talk the same way in those mm-hmm. stories, which like obviously is like you need to to be a good writer but I feel like so many people get stuck in the trap where all their characters talk the same no matter where they are and no matter where they are in time so it's nice to see that like you are that versatile in how you build your relationships with with within your stories you guys are very kind thank you so much (laughs) well I mean we try we we we, we try to also play straight with people as, as best we can. Um, but no, thanks for, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, we've very much appreciated getting the chance to talk to you. Um, we're going to have to kind of like wrap it up here, but again. Yeah. yeah. Um, one more time, say when it's coming out. 
Okay, May 27th, 2022. Uh, uh, and then in spring 2023 is Magic City Blues. And you'll get to see me writing in a, a little bit more urban setting in Magic City Blues, because that is specifically set in Birmingham and using Birmingham as a character. Beautiful. Awesome. Right. We will link all of the information in our show notes. We will link uh, Bobby's Twitter. Go follow him. Um, do you have a website too? I do. It's BamaWriter.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So awesome. thank you again so much for coming. Yeah, thank again. you guys. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. In the meantime, everyone, please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, um, whatever your preferred podcast streaming services. And in the meantime, um, if you'd like to send us work that you want to promote or if you want to go over some work that uh, you'd like us to edit, uh, please feel free to send it to us at darkwaterspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, in the meantime, please always remember to look beneath the surface. Thank you, everybody. Bye, guys.